For 20 years, we've been creating innovation in the CX industry. And now we're seeking out brilliant new perspectives on CX you just won't find anywhere else. I'm Richard Owen. Welcome to the CX Iconoclast. In our first year of the CX Iconoclast, we were lucky enough to have some of the leading minds in academia contribute their ideas. And it won't surprise you that some of them were really forward thinking, but also cast an entirely new light on how we typically think about customer experience, metrics, KPIs, and customer lifetime value. Just the kind of mere idea of customer lifetime value, the idea of being able to project future profitability over long horizons at a granular level, Peter Fader and Don McCarthy are, I would argue, the two most forward-thinking guys today in the United States when it comes to customer lifetime value. It's catching on more and more, but there's still a lot of skepticism out there. There's still a lot of people who say, well, it doesn't apply to my business, to my customers. There's a lot of people who just refuse to acknowledge that there's some amazing statistical regularity about customer behavior and we can capture that ultimately what what matters the most is shareholder value and so if you have a framework that you're going to actually explicitly get you to fair value um well that's something that you know can serve as a north star for any company you know when you buy a building you pay for everything up front but then you receive the benefit over multiple future periods well there you go i mean that's exactly how we would describe investing in a customer relationship point is customers are assets. And even though accounting rules don't really recognize that, oh, they're intangible assets. No, they're tangible assets. Uh, and they really can be measured and managed just like we measure other tangible assets. And we need to do that. Uh, and and we're, we're pushing for not just that kind of, you know, kind of magic bullet metric. We're pushing for just a, a more fundamental, uh, ongoing understanding of, of all the facets of customer behavior, at least the relevant facets of customer behavior. So we should be uh, tracking different aspects of uh, acquisition and retention and repeat purchase and spend from a purely strategic standpoint. How do we leverage it? Once we understand these differences across customers, um, how do we develop strategies and tactics and organizational structures and corporate cultures that let us take full advantage of it? Well, there's really two big barriers. Eric Brynjolfsson is at Stanford these days and probably one of the leading thinkers when it comes to artificial intelligence, machine learning, and its application to business. I mean, the first one was just the availability of data. I mean, we literally couldn't measure things the way we can now. I sometimes compare it to the advent of the microscope for biology, the ability to get very fine grained data and see what's happening inside of organizations with your customers, with your suppliers. Um, digital data, we have literally uh, millions of times more data than we used to have. Everything's become digitized. So that's, that's a revolution in measurement. But the more fundamental revolution is in management and culture that even if you have all this data, uh, there's still an instinct. I mean, really hundreds of years of decision-making to use your gut, use your instincts to, to make, uh, make decisions. And it's a very different mindset. It's a cultural change. But the reality is, is every company is becoming more and more digital and every process is becoming more digital. Um, but it's, it's very concentrated. If you take the top 10% of firms within each of those industries tends to use their digital data much more effectively than the other, other 90%. It's always been iconic to imagine AI that, that replicates humans. However, from an economist's perspective, it turns out to be a very uh, uh, 
inappropriate goal is that it, in a way it's not ambitious enough. Um, if you simply replicate humans, you're sort of setting a ceiling on what you could be doing. If you augment humans, you can do new things you never could have done. The, the other challenge is that um, if you replicate humans, you tend to devalue human labor and it leads to more of a concentration of wealth and power and you end up having a more unequal society. So that's something a lot of us don't want as much either. We're not making the, the organizational changes. We're not rethinking the business to take advantage of these technologies. If you simply uh, paste the technology on top of what you're doing or try to swap out one person with one machine, that rarely leads to, to significant benefits. You need to step back and, and reconceptualize the process. Most of the value is just in these basic supervised learning systems, standard machine, we call it standard machine learning. It's only like a, a, a decade old at, at most. And there's most companies have barely scratched the surface of what they can do that, or even data-driven decision-making, you know, that, that earlier wave, which is, um, you know, mostly worked its way through, but a lot of companies just from, from basic data-driven decision-making, that's where there's a, a, a huge amount of, of benefit. It's not going to automate anybody's job entirely, but people who use these tools are going to replace people. B to B and B to C, as if they're completely different animals, but you're basically dealing with humans. And we've got the same uh, wetware in our brains and the same operating system in our minds working. Paul Marston is an original thinker when it comes to Generation Z and their impact on different ways of doing business, how they perceive products and services. The two basic boxes in the way that people think. Um, one is because kind of it's a heuristic mindset, which is kind of all based on little rules of thumb, working on gut feel, intuition. Suddenly, we go into systematic mode of thinking, which is the uh, sometimes called system two. Um, when we step into business, and we some, sometimes become very rational and we start thinking things through, but actually, it's always a mix of the two. Well, one of the characteristics of Gen Z is that they are the most diverse generation ever. And so you really can't bucket them. They have a different, slightly different value set. They are digital natives, um, you know, second generation digital natives, mobile. They expect a digital seamless um, experience and anything less will just get shut out. Fundamentally, the, the, the big takeaway is that most organizations really did not get the value that they wanted or said they wanted to have from KPIs, from strategic measurement. Michael Schraj is a researcher at MIT and has done some absolute breakthrough work thinking about the ideal design for KPIs, which after all, is something that's heavily influenced by the perspective on customer experience. The key takeaway from the leading indicators piece that Google sponsored was KPIs should be an organizing principle for how organizations differentiate themselves, compete, and add value to and with and for their customers and clients. So the metric that you pick, the measures that you use, powerfully influence the kind of investments that you make, the kind of collaborations that you support, the kind of way you invest in as well as sell to your customer. Most organizations take the path of least resistance. Where do you strike a balance between financial KPIs and organizational and operational KPIs, or dare I say it, KPIs around customer and client experience? Why have so many organizations taken NPS as a path of least resistance 
surrogate KPI or proxy for customer experience? Do we care about customer experience? Do we believe not just that there is a correlation between quality customer experience, but causality between quality customer experience and retention, margin, growth, cost of customer acquisition, then we need to do a bloody good job of defining what customer experience is. Okay, these are the dimensions of customer experience that matter most to us. How do we measure them? Well, when we got into it, what we discovered mm-hmm. was that it wasn't so much functionality. That was taken as table stakes. What customers are really interested in was building a relationship with the provider so that they could work collaboratively to build the next generation of product. Liam Fee and Rolf Oliva are both associated with ISBM, an organization I've come to respect enormously through their focus on business-to-business marketing. Here's what they had to say. Are you listening beyond the functional needs of the customer, which business-to-business customers love to dwell on? But getting to the to the five to seven people that make up a buying center in business to business, are you touching each of them in ways that make sense to them? Are you building relationships? Are you creating customer experiences with those five to seven people? Very often, key assumptions and beliefs are never well articulated, yet they drive the whole perspective on the business. So if you're assuming that functionality is your key driver of customer need, and it turns out to be relationship and emotions, you've totally missed the boat and left yourself wide open to competitors come in and build that relationship with customers. But what about the emotional needs of the customer? I, I think in an extreme point of view, I've heard someone say B, B2B purchases are made to avoid blame. It's how people feel, and not so much about your company and your product, it's how they feel about using your product and how they feel about themselves, both individually as a team or as a group. Ultimately, as we move forward, that is the way to compete. Kind of counterpoint to a lot of business-to-business thinking. You need to really understand the prevailing culture inside that customer organization. And you're getting into one customer which has a very risk-oriented culture from top to bottom. They're much, much more willing to work with you and take a chance on what it is you're offering them. And if you're selling into another culture which is highly risk-averse, then you've got to really have dotted every I and T. You're going to convince them this darn thing really does work. Two very different worlds. And if you have salespeople selling into those two different worlds who are not culturally attuned, you can really end up with a lot of egg on your face. I I would have expected a conversion. We're actually seeing a a separation where the, the companies within each industry that are using digital assets effectively are pulling away from their competitors. A lot of sort of uh, business is, uh, is, is an ego trip, and that kind of has nothing to do with a system to rational think. The real issue is what kind of measures and metrics matter most? What do you really seek to measure? And quite relatedly, based on that metric or that ensemble of metrics, what kind of insights and actions do you want to take? There's going to be a set of companies that have figured out how to use them. Right now, it's mainly the top 10%, and they are just crowding out the people who aren't using the tools. Thanks for listening to the CX Iconoclast from OCX Cognition. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss any of our thought-provoking conversations. And please get in touch if you want to learn more about what OCX Cognition's predictive CX analytics platform can do for your business 
by providing complete insights into every account, continuously updated and connected to operations. You'll find contact info in the show notes.